1: Welcome to the Theatre Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and this podcast, of course, is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is with none other than Karen Olivo, who is treating us to a spectacular performance eight times a week as Satine in Moulin Rouge! The Musical. This episode just blew my mind. My conversation with her got very honest off mic at the beginning um before I start recording. I always tell my guests I say let it go as dark as you want or as light as you want or just be real, be honest and there were a couple times where um, you know before she gave me an answer you hear her ask me like do you want the real answer? Do you want the honest answer? And I say of course, yes. And we got into some some really interesting conversations, something that sort of um struck a, a chord with me was a discussion about race that we have and and her being a person of color in an interracial relationship on stage and also an interracial relationship in real life. It's just something that I'm really excited to share with you. Some people are bicoastal. She is actually wis coastal. Wisconsin coastal? We'll go with wis coastal. She splits her time between Wisconsin and New York, this came out of her sort of leaving New York uh, many years ago. She she basically, just, she didn't really retire, but she gave up the New York life and went out to Wisconsin to, as she puts it, have like, you know, a normal life with a backyard and a driveway. And her husband is there. Her kids are there. They still live there. She sees her husband every couple of weeks when he comes out to see her in the show or when he has uh, time out here with his job. And in the news, she sort of has been talked about as retiring and going on sabbatical or going on a hiatus or whatnot. But she really didn't stop working when she moved to Wisconsin. She just started working in a different area. So we talk about that. It's a really, really great chat. She says this several times in the interview, but she had some trauma that she worked through um, as a child and basically realized that she had to leave New York to work on herself, to work on her own mental health and work on How she could be a better actress and be more in touch with who she is as a person. So, Karen, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for the conversation. It was very, very good. And as always, before we get into it, please visit me online at theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter, Facebook.com slash theater podcast. You can show your support for the podcast, help us do the transcriptions, keep that going at thetheaterpodcast.com slash Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N Everybody please enjoy this episode with Karen Olivo. Step into the world of power loyalty
2: and luck I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything Now
0: you wanna get mixed up in the
2: family business Introducing The Godfather at CiampaCasino.com
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW, void, or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Here you
2: go. One, two, three.
1: Today's Tony Award-winning guest made her Broadway debut in Rent before going on to roles in Brooklyn, the musical, In the Heights, and West Side Story, which is where she won her Tony. Now amazing audiences, critics, and everyone in between, eight times a week as Satine in Moulin Rouge! the musical. Karen Oliva, welcome to the theater podcast. What's up? <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing really well. You were filming something for GMA Good Morning America this morning. Yeah. Is this kind of like a normal a normal day for you? Uh, What what day is it? Today is Friday, so you've got one show tonight, Mm -hmm. and then one press thing this morning where you're filming. You do a podcast in the afternoon, and then you do a show at night. Is this the the normal routine now? Yeah, yeah.
2: This is just this is what's going to be. You know, this is the um, this is the push before you know the Tony season. So. Mm. All of the press and everything that you would normally do gets packed into um, every waking moment that you're not at the theater. So, yeah, this is just a regular day. It seems like
1: so many people don't realize how much work goes into, so many theater fans don't realize how much work goes into being on stage eight times a week when you're not on stage. Right. Because there's the job. Mm-hmm. Right? Of being on Broadway. Mm-hmm. But then the job is also press and marketing and appearances and singing and singing yeah. outside of the show.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. And now add in social media. So like even your private moments have to become a little bit of your public persona.
1: Do you do you
2: enjoy that? No, sir. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, possibly because I'm an older individual that was I grew up in the 80s. So yeah. like I remember, like, playing outside with sticks and and dirt, and that was my form of entertainment. So social media is something that is very different and new to me and not something that I like to use uh, as a a career tool.
1: So let's back up, and we're going to get into the social media stuff. Because I want to touch on the whole, like, private life hiatus bit of your career, which is a big part of who you are now. Yeah. Um, But before we get there, obviously, let's go through the beginning and tell me where you grew up.
2: Um, I was born in the South Bronx. I was raised here till I was about seven or eight years old, and then I went to Central Florida. So around, um, I would say about an hour south of the Disney World area, mm-hmm. a place called Winter Haven.
1: And were you performing down there at, you know, at, any, my, at any time?
2: Yeah, my dad was a director and a visual artist, and my mother did all of the things inside the theater, anything from stage managing to props to costumes. So um, I was always going to be in the theater mm-hmm. in some capacity.
1: W- when did you get involved? I mean, what were you, I guess what were you doing at first? Were you just hanging around with mom and dad? Or how did, how did that well, like, it actually, start?
2: It started actually before I even left New York. My dad had started uh, a theater group in our church basement And so I was about six maybe, and they just, you know, it was easier to have me on stage than to get a babysitter. So they just started putting me on stage pretty young. how young? I was about six. Yeah? Yeah, I was like, I think I played like a clown in one of the, the church skits, and then they started doing shows, and I was just on the stage. So I don't really remember a time in which I wasn't on a stage.
1: And is that what you wanted to do? Like, Did you know early on that you're like, this is where I'm comfortable and this is what I want to do? I mean, I guess that's assuming that you're still comfortable on stage
2: now. Right, right. (laughs) No, you you are correct. I am comfortable on stage. Uh, I was probably eight years old. That was like the first time I ever did a monologue and that was in community theater when we'd moved down to Florida. I had like a monologue and it was like the first time that I looked out into the audience and all of these adults were hanging on my every word and I was like, yo, this is power. I like it here. Uh, And then I was also amazed at how a young person could um, hold adults' attention. And I dug it, and that was it.
1: I'm struggling. I'm not struggling. I'm I'm digging in my mind and see if there's a deeper meaning here. you're, You're finding that you have power with this audience of adults. So does that mean on in real life that you were searching for power maybe like with your parents yeah I had
2: I have a very uh a a bit of a checkered uh childhood not the not the regular sort of uh childhood so I'm a I'm a kid of conflict and some some trauma so I was always looking for balance anywhere else and theater you know for a lot of you've talked to many actors Mm -hmm. um Traumatic experiences and, you know, anything from physical abuse to mental abuse to, you know, issues like that are, um, you find a safe haven in theater. Uh, even kids who are bullied or anything like that. When you get on stage, there are, it, there's like a protection.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's scripted. You're allowed to be anything. You're usually with people who welcome anyone from any walk of life. So it it became a very obvious choice for me. And it didn't hurt that I was actually already in theater from a very young age. So yes.
1: Yeah, I, I I can completely relate to that. Like as someone who was bullied at a young age. Like that that was my safe haven. Right. And I got to be, you know, I got to be the a, a character, a person that was safe. I was supposed to be this person. When I didn't know who I was, I could for sure be someone else and be safe as someone else just for a few hours a night. Absolutely. Or, or during rehearsal, you know, the months and months of community theater rehearsal. Um, even
2: the act of putting on a costume is something that is very comforting. Uh, you, you look in the mirror, you don't even see yourself anymore. You see something else. So for kids who are struggling, it becomes obvious, like, that's a, a good right. place to hide.
1: right. So eight years old then you found you found your place and you're still in Florida and do you start doing do, taking voice lessons? You start dancing? What's next?
2: No, I was amateur. I was, you know, just doing musical theater in um in community theater. And then I decided around high school that I wanted to go to performing arts high school. And I tried it for a year. It was really hard. And I was like, "Maybe I don't want to do this." And then I spent one semester in regular high school, and I immediately jetted right back to performing arts high school. and but I still had not taken like professional singing classes, really or prof- No. I was still in a very amateur world. I didn't start taking professional voice until I was in college in at Cincinnati Conservatory of Music,
1: Wow. Oh, so you went to CCM, yeah. Uh, And graduated from CCM? No. No, you didn't?
2: Still have not graduated, even though I am listed as an alum.
1: Yeah, they tend to do that. You know, why wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Hi. Yeah. What what happened? Why why not uh, graduate?
2: Uh, I was a junior, I think, when rent had just come out.
1: Yes, you were 21, right? I I have that in here.
2: Yeah, I just, now everyone knows how old I am. I am Methuselah. Um, I'm the oldest person. Uh, no. <laughs> you
1: just Google you and your, your birthdays are all over Wikipedia. Sure, 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 sure. I don't yeah. really
2: care, truthfully. Um, but yeah, rent had just come out. And I think on a break, I, went, I came up with a friend of mine and we slept outside and we saw it. And so I went to my first open call and I ended up getting it. And I talked to my professors at school and I was like, yeah, next year is supposed to be my senior year. But if I get rent on Broadway, I'm leaving. And they were like, yep, you should. Yeah. And that was it. And that was my first Broadway show.
1: And that's changed. I mean, Rent itself changed the face of theater.
2: Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it was the first time that I had seen someone, um, a contemporary version of myself, Daphne right. Rubin Vega. I was right. like, oh, there I am. I see myself, and I'm not in period costume, and I'm not a slave, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, There, you know, it, it was eye-opening. To someone who wanted to have a life in the theater.
1: Well, yeah, it's representative, and and I mean that was kind of the turning point. And it's still like diversity in in theater is still not where it should be. Absolutely not. But you are Puerto Rican, Dominican, and Chinese
2: descent. That is, that is true,
1: right? Okay, so do you identify with one more than the other?
2: You know, it's hard. Um, my I would say Puerto Rican, Dominican, the Spanish uh, portion is more prevalent. I was I was raised in a household that spoke Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, The Chinese part of me is on my mother's side, and um, I didn't have a whole lot of interaction with that part of her family. Uh, So I would say I'd probably identify more with the the Dominican and Puerto Rican part.
1: I read a stat that Latinos comprise less than 3% of active members in the union for stage performers. You got that right. And I guess growing up, when you started to get into theater, were you dissuaded by... By that, by not seeing yourself represented?
2: Yes, and because I was very arrogant and a little bit of a, I had survivor mentality, I was, I, I sort of vowed to be the one who would actually do it. And you did. Yeah, there were not many of me. It was, it, honestly, it was like Priscilla Lopez and Daphne. Like, those yeah. are, like, the two people that I could pick out. <laughs> and strangely enough, when I got into In the Heights, one of the people that I loved and idolized for so many years, Andrea Burns, who now is a dear friend, had no idea that she was Hispanic. So I would listen to her all the time on Songs for a New World, trying to sing like her, and I was like, wow, that voice, never knowing that that was actually someone that I should be looking at to sort of emulate and build a career off of.
1: Wow. So, how long were you in Rent then? So, you came into Rent in '97. How long were you in?
2: I was there until about 2001.
1: 2001, and then Brooklyn the musical came mm-hmm. in 2004, mm-hmm. and you originated the role of Faith,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? That's so, right. between 2001 and 2004, um, just the normal normal grind, the normal struggle.
2: Yeah, I left the show because I knew that if I, it was gonna it was gonna run forever, and I could stay as a swing and not really grow, and I wanted to start creating roles, so I quit the show without a job, and waited tables, um, did everything from sample sales uh, to—I was going to temp, and then I was like, oh, I'm actually the worst typist ever, so no, (laughs) that's not going to happen for me. Uh, I worked in lots of bars and restaurants and did odd jobs before uh, Brooklyn came along.
1: Was it hard for you to, to do the nightlife and get up early? for the open calls and for the auditions like that, that was always sort of what I saw a lot of my friends fall into that trap of having a survival job that then became literally for survival that doesn't allow them any flexibility or energy to go do what they really want to do.
2: Absolutely. You are correct. Yeah. It was very difficult to do that. I mean, truthfully, I spent more time working just to make a living Mm -hmm. than actually going out and doing anything else. Um, I I made sure that I was always working the brunch shift because that meant that I could still make a wage and not have to worry about a late night.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, no one wants a brunch shift. Brunch oh, is yeah. the worst. Brunch is the absolute worst.
0: Yeah. I right.
2: Guess. I mean, as a way in the waiting world, we all know. Yeah. This. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're correct.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then, so Brooklyn the musical, and then in the Heights came in 2009. Mm-hmm. It opened. And West Side Story, the revival, was also in two thousand nine. Yeah. So were you, were you working on both at the same time? No.
2: I we had just opened uh, in the Heights and won the Tony, and then we had that summer of sort of like basking in the glow of that, and then uh, West Side Story was about to happen in the fall, and they had not found an Anita, uh, and I had been called in to audition, and I kept saying, "I'm not an idiot. No, I'm not going to do that to myself." Mm-hmm. Not touching that one. And then finally it came down to, I think they were a week out of rehearsals. They were about to start the rehearsals in a week and they still didn't have an Anita. And they did their final call back and they asked me, like, you're one of, like, two people we haven't seen in the city. And so I went in and then I ended up getting it four days later.
1: And then winning a Tony for it.
2: Winning a Tony for it later,
1: yeah. How did things change at that point?
2: Uh, what part?
1: After winning the Tony.
2: After winning the Tony, um, it, you know... You want the honest version? Absolutely. Okay. Everything got more complicated uh, because you, when you are given an award like that, you are put on everyone's radar, and you immediately become something that people try to monetize. Mm. Um, You're the you're the not you're the the next hottest thing. Um, Outside of Sada Ramirez, I was you know one of the more contemporary. Latinas to win an award, um, then people were like, what can we do with her? And so I was pushed and pulled in lots of different directions and not really having a good foundation of the kind of work that I wanted to do became a detriment. And so I spent the next two years sort of fighting um, with myself myself doing jobs that I didn't want to do or turning down things that I did want to do but people thought were beneath me or you've won a Tony, you can't do that. Those kinds of things start to come into play. Um, And then obviously the next biggest thing when you win a Tony is to go onto TV and film because that's where all of the money is. So um, yeah, just complicated. Um, Everyone (laughs) thinks that you winning the Tony is like you finally made it. I just basically ended up, Uh, climbing to the top of one ladder and seeing that there were like 50 other ladders ahead of me. And I was at the bottom rung.
1: (laughs) What did did Andre DeShield say in his Tony acceptance speech this year? Last year, he said "The the top of one mountain is the bottom of
2: the next. Yeah, 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 Yeah. brother. That's the truth, man. It is so the truth.
1: Yeah. So did you you get into TV and film at that point? I did.
2: I did the thing that everyone told me to do, that the teams told me to do. Uh, got an NBC show, went out to L.A., shot it, loved the people I was working with. I got to work with Kathy Bates, who's my favorite human and actress. Um, that was incredible, and then that ended, and then I was stuck out in L.A., uh, which, for me, was a bit of a wasteland in the world of art. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found myself in rooms saying words that uh, made my heart hurt, just like, that's bad writing, and... Um, I started to really rethink my steps of going out to LA. Um, and then that sort of butts up against uh, me taking a break, so, hitting, hitting the pause button.
1: Right. So it was, this is probably what, 2010, 2011?
2: Yes, it was around then.
1: And you moved to Wisconsin. Yeah. Of all places.
2: Yeah. I mean, there are a handful of, uh, personal things happened. The TV show had ended. I started doing work that I really didn't like. Then my relationship, my marriage ended at the same time. And um, I was really starving for an artistic outlook that I I could not find in LA. I came back to New York to do a show um, that kind of broke open the the wound of the divorce happening. And I realized that there was a lot of stuff that I needed to fix within Karen before I could Mm -hmm. keep turning into characters, believably. So knowing that I knew what New York was, I'd done that. I knew what LA was, wasn't going to do that. I'd been dating someone who lived in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'd been bi-coastal for a little bit because, you know, after my TV show had ended, I would come back to New York and go back from, and I would always stop in Madison, Wisconsin. And I found... Everyone there to be not only incredibly uh, well-read and uh, liberal-minded and artistically inclined. Uh, and then I fell in love with him and his family. And I was like, well, this is, this is a very simple decision. I'm not going back to New York. I'm not staying in L.A. Madison is incredible. I'm going to go there and I'm going to figure out the things that I need to figure out before I keep taking on jobs.
1: Well, I'm going to come back to that. I just want to interject real quick. It's funny that you say that because I took a test one, like years ago, one of these, you know, fun internet tests. Mm-hmm. that was, you know, what's your perfect city? And it's, I put in all the things that are important to me, like nightlife and being around water and having four distinct seasons and, and having an artistic scene and et cetera, et cetera. And my number one was Sheboygan, Wisconsin.
2: Well, I'm not going to, yeah, Sheboygan's not bad.
1: But I'm just saying, like Wisconsinites.
2: Yeah, w- Wisconsin's two, yeah? not, I mean, yeah. it's really great. We're really close to Chicago. Milwaukee's got a lot of art that's really great right there on the water. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, you know. Great. Right. Okay,
1: so in Wisconsin then, so you work on Karen. And you are, you're making a conscious choice to step away from the limelight, step away from the grind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, so what do you find, What what's happening? What are you finding yourself doing in Wisconsin? Uh,
2: you know, I was having a lot of regular conversations about, um, you know, raising children, um, gardening.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Normal stuff. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Because um, you have a
1: backyard and a driveway. Right,
2: politics. Um, you know, the family that I married into is really political and um, incredibly civic-minded, and they're, you know, they're incredible humans. So I, I spent my time being a regular person, not talking about the business, and sort of filling up the tanks of Karen that were depleted um, and the most important thing, quite frankly, was being a mom. Mm-hmm. You know, I became the mother to um two really great kids, and that sort of shaped a lot of uh, a lot of me.
1: did you have a moment when you just kind of realized uh you know you're marrying into to with somebody who already has kids, right? And you just have a moment where you're like, I am their mother figure now. I have to change or I'm a different person. Or was it just kind of, like, was it sort of a a switch?
2: Well, it started as I will always be the understudy. Mm. Right? Because I'm not the biological. Right. So, um, and their mother is still in their life. Their biological mother is still in their life. But, you know, pretty early on, I realized, well, if I keep, calling them my stepchildren, they'll always feel that. So that I just called them my kids. And when you see them, they're blonde and blue-eyed. Everyone was like, hmm, <laughs> not your kid. And I'm like, you know, shut up. That's my kid. As they got older, as they were, you know, out of grade school and they were like having to make life choices and they were watching me and sort of um trying to make choices based on the way that I live my life, I just, I don't know, it felt maybe organic. I Luckily, I'd already started working on myself um, and how I I react to people in relationships, and so things organically just started to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, I was putting my best foot forward already, and so when they would watch me, they would see someone trying to do the right thing for the right reasons.
1: Yeah, I've, I've I'm about what about a year and a half into therapy now. For myself, and you know, thirty nine, it's it's completely transformed me. And I've got a three and a half and a five year old. So I did the first couple of years with no therapy. First a couple of years of having kids with no therapy, and I I just don't understand how anyone can be at the level that you are in this business now without doing all that self work, that inward. Looking work because it requires so much vulnerability mm-hmm. and so much understanding of of just raw emotion and reaction. Because you know the most of acting is listening, so right. you've got to react authentically. And if you're understanding yourself, you understand more about reactions and other people and blah blah blah. You know, but but you know,
2: you're talking about acting from a a, a holistic approach. Though. Yeah, but see, there's been so many actors that do it as a cover and as a cloak. And what I was doing prior to me really sitting down and uh, examining myself was, uh, you know, as a child of conflict, you play any role you need to, so you stay stay safe. safe. And uh, I did that really well. I honed a skill that was undeniable. Mm -hmm. And so I made a career off of doing the thing that kept me safe as a child. And when you become an adult and you realize, I don't need this anymore because I'm not in danger— and you still want to be an actor, you have to figure out how to actually be an actor based on the person that you want to be, not the person that you were trying to... Not m- to be. Yeah. So yeah. now I think the therapy and the space actually made me... Now I'm a solid actor. Yeah. Before I was just... I was rolling the dice nightly.
1: Wow. Yeah, I, I never looked at it kind of with that angle before because I, I, I've seen lots of... I mean, performed with lots of people who... You can tell that there's just something that's not quite authentic because they're they're not completely present because they're using it as a cover, and yeah, I, I,
2: careers have been made on that. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, but you, but like you said, you've worked with those people, so and I'm as a patron. I mean, I'm an avid theater goer. I can pick them out. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, you're here, you're not, and I was like, I'm never going to be the person who's not there. Not now. No. So you got to figure it out how to do that work. Well,
0: (laughs) it is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
1: 18 plus. <laughs> yeah. Well then, okay. So we're here to talk about Moulin Rouge, the musical, uh, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah. that that little thing. Um, so at what point it's 2019, the show opens on Broadway. When did you get involved? When like, do someone just call you up and you're like riding your bike through a park in Madison? And you're no, like, I had actually
2: I, started doing Hamilton in Chicago. Oh yeah because it was right there in my backyard yeah. and my buddies wrote it and I was like hey I'll just go do this for some quick money and like this is an awesome show I of loved course. it and um so I did that for like 11 months almost a year and then while I was doing that people were like oh Karen's still acting um Meanwhile I had been back to the city to do a number of projects right. like I did a show I did a show with the public in the park I'd done tick tick boom with Lynn and Leslie like I'd been in New York but it was Hamilton that sort of put me back on the radar of people. And then they were just like, hey, come in audition for Satine. And I was like, this is Karen Olivo. <laughs> you have the wrong number. Um, they're like, no, no, no. We're looking for a completely different take on Satine. And I was like, all right. And then so I went in and that was it. Well,
1: so when, okay, first off, when you heard that they were making Moulin Rouge into a musical.
2: About time. That's what I thought. It's about damn time.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's the second person I always had that, which is great. Um, I agree, and then what year was this? I'm sorry, did you say?
2: Mm, Let's see. When you had the audition, Hamilton. I I was still in Hamilton when I did it. So let's see. That would be. I'm really bad with numbers in general, but years and how they relate to my life are all a blur. I want to say uh, 2018. Does that make Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: I mean, so 2000. Yeah, it opened. It opened fall.
2: No, no, 2017.
1: That wouldn't make more sense. Two
2: thousand seventeen. Two
1: years of development. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. I think that's right. Yes.
1: <laughs> so, by oh wait, that, I've
2: been doing it for two years. Have I been doing Mulan? What does it say there on your, your laptop? Does it say it, that it, I've
1: been op- doing <laughs> it for two years? <laughs> it opened. The show opened. Uh, hold on, hold on let me Google this. Let's see. <laughs> Mulan Rouge Broadway I'm opening dead. date. No, uh, no, not the
2: opening date. Was
1: June twenty eighth.
2: Right. So we've. Oh, been, sorry.
1: July twenty fifth. Previews so, were June twenty eighth.
2: Yeah, it's been two years that I've been working okay. on it. So, Off-Broadway, I went well, off-Broadway. We did, like, a little lab. We we did a lab downtown. Like, a 3 two, two, three-week stints downtown. And then we went to Boston. So, yeah. Downtown. And
1: how much, how much of Satine came from you versus Alex Timbers versus whoever? I mean, because they're saying they're looking for a completely different take. So, obviously, but one of the things I love about the show is that race never is in... It's never even brought up because mm-hmm. Moulin Rouge just accepts every all walks of life, right? Whatever mm-hmm. the line is, that everyone's welcome at the Moulin Rouge. Mm-hmm. And I love that like the best courtesan is a person of color. Yeah. Like the most sought after one. Yeah. But so the casting choice, obviously a little bit out of your control, but then how much, how much of Karen came into Satine that we see on stage?
2: A lot, I think, because I am... As I've already told you, I spent most of my formative years being whatever anyone needed to keep Mm -hmm. me safe. And I think Satine is actually that. She's a—I mean, you saw the show. She's the kid who got kicked around and could have ended up in a ditch somewhere. So um, she used whatever she had to carve out a life. And, um, you know, and having, you know, being a sex worker at a young age— uh, decided to use the thing that was given to her, her body. She wields it sort of like uh, a sword, mm-hmm. the sexuality, and um, and I think that that all of that stuff is something that just comes from Karen's upbringing. Sadly, sadly, and happily, because I think that that's what you. I think that's what people uh, see, like the depth. Yeah. Yeah. Is on an honest depth. You're not. You're not seeing a Satine that's trying to be melodramatic and deep. She's just like, nah. No, she's really complex. Because I'm complex.
1: Yeah. Well, I I love I love in the show how, I mean, the three leads between the Duke and Christian and Satine, in the movie and this and I said this when I was talking with Tam Mutu the other day that that the way he does the Duke, it, it's real. It's not this comic mm-hmm. caricature. Oh yeah. So there was one point where. You know, I know the outcome of the show because I've seen the movie, obviously, but I'm like, he could really, Chris, um, Satine could really choose the Duke here because this is a tough choice. He's a real person now.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, we we push you to believe that in a lot of ways during the show because if you, you know, they talk about where she comes from having nothing, um, only even having a roof over her head because she's decided that she's going to perform. Mm-hmm. And the Moulin Rouge houses her. So when she's offered something that means uh, stability, she's probably going to really think about it. And then you put it in in a Tam Mutu packaging. <laughs> and then it becomes really, really a viable option. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It, well, so Satine is choosing between love and stability. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like is there, I feel like there's a little bit of a parallel to to your life as well, because, you know, your stability is Wisconsin Mm -hmm. and your love is New York. Mm -hmm. And so now you're kind of bouncing back between two worlds.
2: I am trying to find the balance.
1: So, what are you going to, I mean, are you going to continue to to go back? Like, do you still have a life in Wisconsin?
2: Yeah, I have a very full life in Wisconsin. Kids in school and. Oh, they're still there. Oh, yeah.
1: Your husband's still there? Yeah. Wow.
2: Yeah, he he flies up here every three weeks or so.
0: Oh.
2: Luckily, you know, he works for ETC, Electronic Theater Controls, who they do lighting instruments and consoles and rigging. And they're, they have a headquarters like a couple blocks from here. So yeah. he can come here and work from here. Um, and, you know, as we co-parent with their biological mother, so when they go to their mother's house for a week, he comes here. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, we've somehow managed to make it work.
1: That's that's great. I mean, I think it's important for kids to have a, a positive mother figure in general, but biological mother, of course, if it if it makes sense to have her in, it's great that you're not threatened by that, or you can co-parent. No, their easily biological and, yeah. mother is yeah. great.
2: I mean, it's it's really strange. Like I, I see so many uh, so many unorthodox uh, family dynamics nowadays. Uh, where there are three and four people parenting children. And what I find is the three of us, uh, Amanda is their biological mother's name, and Jim, my husband, and I, we are all so very different. Mm -hmm. And we offer these kids things that the other could not. And we know that, and we balance that, and we we do feel confident enough to go to each other and say, hey, this one's yours. This is your expertise. You handle this. Wow. So three people raising two kids, and we're really lucky, and it, it works out.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it takes a village. I've said that before. Like that, that old cliche saying, but it... Really does. You just let the kids run around, and you know the village raises them. Not in New York, but um, <laughs> oh, not. God, have they come? Have you, your kids come to see the show? Have you?
2: Yeah, my kids see everything I do.
1: So, what do they? What do they say when they're like, "That's that's mom on stage"? Do they do they realize the gravitas of kind of what you do?
2: You know, my daughter does because she's very a very skilled little theater performer herself. Um, my son is just like, "Yeah, that's Karen." He's just like, "Whatever," <laughs> you know, like that's her job. Um, it, you know they're they're really regular kids. My daughter is probably a little bit more on the end of wow that's really great because she's looking to do this yeah. and she probably will. She's really talented, so um, she probably has a little bit more of a star in her eye than, yeah. than my my son.
1: I mean, we're at the tail end of of Broadway Con, which was last weekend, yeah. and and just seeing everyone come out of the woodwork from all over the country mm-hmm. and to meet a Tony winning person on Broadway is like, that's the best thing that could ever happen to them in their lives. And you've got a son who's like, yeah, okay. That's just scary. I mean, I think
2: he's proud. <laughs> I, I know. I but not I think to he's downplay. just kind of like, he's like, yeah, my dad works for ETC. Do you know what I mean? It becomes your norm. Yeah. And we don't, you know, it's not like, I don't wake up and like wave my Tony award in their face. You know, <laughs> like they, it, we're just regular yeah. people. Well, yeah, everybody's
1: regular people at the end of the day. We're
2: really regular at our house. And we're like
1: real. Yeah. Well, some people just can't go to Starbucks, and some can. You know, <laughs> that's why they need assistance. <laughs> um, back to the Moulin Rouge, please. Uh, Nicole Kidman mm-hmm. has she come to see the show she yet? She has. She did. Did you talk to her?
2: I did. She was lovely and ethereal.
0: Oh, really? Yeah,
2: like she got close to me and I was like, oh, wow, that's what beautiful people look like. Like, I can't believe, like my eyes hurt right now. She is like glowing and sort of floating. <laughs> so um, she was haunting. <laughs> no, she was, but like statuesque and like just regal looking. And she, the one thing that she said to me, the very first thing was, obviously that was wonderful, but then she said, how do you do the coughing? She was really concerned about the coughing. And I was like, I cough." She was like, but that's so bad for your voice. And I was like, yeah, it's really bad for my voice. Um, so I try to be really good with my voice at all other times.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's <laughs> so much fun. Um, I was going to ask if you had modeled any, any of your Satine after Nicole Kidman's version of the movie. I mean, we're so different. Yeah, you like, are. you very different. We look
2: so different. I, I don't know that I have any of the strengths that she does. So I don't know that—I mean, I'm also a firm believer in just, like, be your best version of you. Um, I was such a huge fan of that movie. God, I I mean—
1: And, like, Bass Lerman basically just gave everybody creative license to make it your own, yeah?
2: Yeah. We're lucky. Um, He really trusts Alex, so he knew it would be in good hands. Um, No, I mean, I I guess I didn't. I I guess— when you love something that much and you're such a huge fan, the only way to really approach something like that is to uh, love it and revere it and then put it aside and say, I'm going to pay homage, but I'm, I'm not going to truly emulate because it wouldn't be possible for me.
1: It's not, well, it's not authentic. If you're I, impersonating her, you're not being
2: I, I mean, yourself. I, there's no—I mean, I'd like, to, I'd like to be that ethereal, but I'm just not. This is not something I can do.
1: It's, it's a more. I think your portrayal is a bit more like. What you were saying earlier is it's there's more depth. It's grittier. Is what. Yeah, she's I a came real. She's mind. a sex worker. Yeah.
2: She, yeah. <laughs> truthfully, let's just be honest. <laughs> she's, right. <laughs> she's a legitimate sex worker who happens to be able to sing and dance.
1: Right. And at that time in Paris, or even still in Europe, like sex work is still depends on where you are. It's not frowned upon. Um, it's actually a pretty noble profession, mm-hmm. depending on where you go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, did you go see the the actual Moulin Rouge?
2: I did not. You haven't? No. I know.
1: Oh, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> judging either way. Um, I know. I've, I've seen have... the outside.
2: Oh, I've seen the outside. Yeah. I've never seen the actual show
1: at the Moulin yeah. Rouge, though. No. There's not still. That's a dumb question. There's not still prostitution there, is there?
2: I don't think so. Yeah, no. okay. I can't imagine that there would be.
1: I wouldn't think so. I mean, it's Amsterdam, it could be, but not Paris. No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, ignorant question. If anybody knows, write me. Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> um when when well oh, going back to Nicole Kidman obviously presents, she's a very Caucasian presenting person. Mm-hmm. Um, you are a person of color who you said you identify with being um being Puerto Rican. Um and when you were creating and crafting Satine, did any of that, did the racial aspect ever come into any of this or was it just a straight up story of love?
2: You know, the, for me, it didn't because I'm in an interracial relationship right now. My husband is Caucasian, so I, um, I never really thought of it. The things that did come up were uh, my gender, you know, a portrayal of uh, a strong female character, Um, was very important. That kept popping up. Like, there's an earlier version of our script in which Nini, much like the movie, um, is the person who rats out Satine and betrays her Mm -hmm. to the Duke. And pretty early on, you know, sitting down with John Logan, our book writer, we were discussing, you know, there's so many things that we needed to keep from the movie, just plot points. We didn't want to, like, remake the entire thing, but... That was one thing that I was like, in our day and age, like, could it just be, like, not that thing where the girl rats out the girl? Like, that catty sort of competition thing that we see so often. Could they actually be the sisters that I see a lot? Um, And that ended up being something that transferred With it. So, gender became more of an issue and race became less of an issue, I think. Um, It's undeniable. People look at me and you're like, you're a brown woman and you're the sparkling diamond. And I see there are numerous little girls that come to the stage door and um, look at me and say, thank you for being this. And um, usually I'm like, no, thank you for saying that, first of all. (laughs) And now you go and do go and break some other barrier, go be something that no one ever thought that you could be. Um, But yeah, I guess that's the longest answer to your question. No, it's a great
1: answer. And I I love, I mean, the trend that as a society right now, I I feel like the arts are allowed to fight back when, when in general, as a society, we're, we're pushing against maybe something in the wrong direction. And of course, you know, politics, We'll just leave that in the, in the ether, you know, without getting into specifics, but, some people vehemently disagree with where we're going and some people like it. And so I think as uh, the arts right now are allowed to protest that without being in your face about it. Absolutely. So you've got like Head Over Heels where Bonnie Milligan, a plus-size woman, is the most beautiful woman in the land. Mm-hmm. And there's no question. Of course not. And then you've got like Satine, the, mo- the sparkling diamond, who is a woman of color. And that's, there's no question. Right. And I mean, it- you could talk about Lin-Manuel for days. Mm-hmm. and how he's changing things. And I just, I really applaud, applaud you. I applaud the whole, the whole creative team for, for not even giving it a second thought of like, yeah, this, this is feasible and it should be there.
2: Oh, I think that the, the one thing that I would say with that is thank you for having this conversation. Cause not a lot of people want to talk about that specifically, but it's not that it's not given a second thought because for a person of color, you're always thinking that because there is no way for you to forget the way that you've been treated or the way people look at you. People still make that very—it's still known. Mm-hmm. I mean, the statistic that you just quoted about the percentage of people of color, specifically Latin people mm-hmm. who are, you know, card carriers, um, thats that weighs heavily on me. Um, I, I think that we we don't lead out with it in the show because— that's not my job. The marketing portion of this is not my job, but for the individual, it is a very Mm -hmm. important part for me. Um, My personal experience with Moulin Rouge is not the public experience, but when in this situation, I do feel compelled to say that it is something that weighs heavily on me. I am always highly aware when I come down on that trapeze that I'm a woman of color and that people are looking at me and I am to be something—I have to—this <laughs> is going to sound crazy, but I, I have to be the best woman of color in that role. Does that make sense?
1: I, yeah, and it makes me really sad. Well,
2: that's where we are, though, right? Because people who see the movie—we see so many people come through our doors that are fans of the movie. And so if you're a fan of the movie, then you know Satine to be a gorgeous redhead a very fair-skinned, gorgeous redhead. And so if you see me come down, then I, the deck is stacked against me in some capacity. So then I have to use everything that I have to win you over. and And I don't see it as a negative. I see it as a challenge. This is also the child of conflict coming up again. But I see it as an opportunity to let you know that it doesn't matter what I look like. And hopefully if I've done my job right, you won't see my skin color. You'll see a person who's hurting and who falls in love and who sacrifices for her family at the Moulin Rouge and ends up dying a, a wonderful death.
1: I, I don't know what to say next. I'm, I am for the first time, I think in 70 something, 70 something interviews, a bit speechless. I feel <sighs>
2: Feel very melancholy right now. No, I'm. I'm I've saddened him. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I asked you if you wanted me to be real.
1: I do, and I. I love this. This is. No, I'm. I'm not going to edit any of this out. I think this is perfect, and this is what I want people to hear. Um, it's just. I don't know what else to say. That's. It's encouraging. Like I. I came. When you came. When you come down, you know. We already see the 11 minute. 11 minute opening number, mm-hmm. and where the stage is set, like, you walk into the theater and the atmosphere, like, the whole house is transformed. It's not mm-hmm. just the proscenium back. It's exactly. the entire house. Yes, you are in the Moulin you Rouge. You are in the Moulin Rouge. And you watch, and there's a pre-show and everyone's in character when they're walking around as the audience is loading in. And then you come down and it's, it's literally like this diamond just sparkling from the ceiling. And to know that in the back of your mind, you feel... Immediately at a disadvantage just because of your skin color makes me so incredibly sad.
2: I don't know I, if it's I, necessarily like a disadvantage. Like, I don't Like you're really, trying
1: to win over the audience. Well,
2: yeah. Well yeah. All, I mean the structure of the play also makes it so that I have to be yeah. I have to win them over, right? Eleven minutes. They I mean I have two, I have like a false Introduction yeah. at one point yeah. in the show. They're like, here she comes, and they're like, No, she's not. So people are awaiting the sparkling diamond already. Yeah. So that is already a, a hurdle for me. Where where is she? Right. Everyone's been talking about how she's the most dynamic, blah, 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 blah. That's all they talk about. Yeah. So there's that. And then there's my personal stuff. Wow. That is not a negative, truthfully. I mean, look,
1: I, I'm I'm glad. Okay, go ahead.
2: I mean I've made it this far, being who I am, with my background. Right at this point, for me to get down about that stuff, it doesn't make sense. Right, I would never. I wouldn't be sitting in this chair. I wouldn't have a Tony Award. I wouldn't. So I've managed to figure out a way to make those negatives something that just make me work harder, and it's a positive because it wor- it always works out because I don't stop.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it is. That's the reality of our situation in the society right now. And luckily, I am wielding a sword that will help me slay the giant.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the audience.
2: It's a positive. Look, it's okay. a positive. Okay, I see it. I see it. I see it. <laughs>
1: I'm, feelin- I'm feeling better. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for making this about me. Um <laughs> No, please don't think that. Um, <laughs> goodness, you're you're accomplishing what you're setting out to accomplish. Don't feel bad. Like God, to just seeing seeing the costumes and the set and the story and the singing and the music is incredible. And you are slaying out there. Well, thank you. And I'm. I, I want you to take something with you out of this that hopefully will give you a little bit less pressure. Every night, just remember, remember this. <laughs> remember that you're doing a good job. And so many people continue to think so. And they write about it. You've got reviews coming up. I read the here. reviews, so. They're good. They're all good. All, I didn't okay. read a single bad one. All right. Well, yeah. It's all, good. all like just praising how much ass you are kicking. Coming out of that, coming down from the fly every day. All right. For eight times a week anyway. Yeah. So continue doing what you're doing. You're doing great. Thanks. So there are three standard closing questions that oh. I ask everyone. All right. On the podcast. Hope the f-
2: I get them right.
1: Well, there's no wrong answer. Okay. It's not trivia.
2: Good, because I would <laughs> definitely get them wrong.
1: Cool, let's go. <laughs> right. There's three standard trivia questions I ask <laughs> everyone. Okay. Um, the first one is what motivates you?
2: Uh, youth. The youth. I look at my kids. I look at students that I teach. I'm motivated by, uh, by them. Yeah.
1: All right. It. Second question is, what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path?
2: I would say uh, trust your gut a little bit more and be kinder to yourself.
1: I get the be kinder to yourself, get that so much. Oh There's gosh. so much self-doubt and self-hate all over the place. It's so just, bad. And I, Yeah, I'm victim myself. Like I got the little, the devil and the, and the angel on your wing, mm-hmm. on your shoulders, and mm-hmm. the devil talks a lot. And then the final question. This is the hardest one. Mm -mm. If you can only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see?
2: Oh, dang. Um, I've never seen a production of it, but it's my favorite musical. It would be Passion.
1: Mm. Okay. There you go. And we can find you online on Instagram and Twitter at karenalevo 76 Mm Mm-hmm on both platforms and, of course, karenolivo.com. And you get more of me at theaterpodcast.com Support the podcast at theaterpodcast.com slash Patreon. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. Listen and leave a rating on whatever platform you are listening to at the present moment. Turn to your friend next to you and say, hey, friend, I'm listening to Karen Olivo. You need to listen to this, too. This is edited by Matthew Hendershot. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. M- music. Music. Music, <laughs> thank you, thank you to Jukebox to Ghost for the intro and the music. And Karen, <laughs> thank, thank you, <laughs> you're so welcome for this amazingly great conversation. This is fun, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for coming. <laughs> Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful.